So what we saw post-Brexit, and particularly with the status of Gibraltar mm-hmm. moving with the UK, outside, effectively outside of the European Union, it, it fund, and a lot of the big online UK-facing online um, gambling operators having established themselves historically in Gibraltar, it did force them to reconsider where where they needed to set up their operating hubs in, in order to continue supplying their services, both in the UK, but more pertinently throughout the European Union and indeed elsewhere. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Sigma podcast, where today we're meeting Chris Elliott, a partner at Wigan, a law firm in the UK with its offices in London. Good afternoon, Chris, Good and Good thank afternoon, you for Trevor. accepting our invite. It's my pleasure. Good it's to a talk. pleasure. It's a pleasure to host you. And it's a pleasure to spend the next 20, 25 minutes chatting with you about regulatory compliance, in particular with the UK market. The UK market, which has been in the news again last week, following the the fine which Gamesys has received, a record fine of six million sterling. And actually there was, the wording used was not a, negotiated settlements or that sort of thing. It actually was listed as a penalty on the UKGC website. Without, I don't know if they are clients of yours or not, but whatever as a lawyer you could tell us, as a lawyer with an interest in the UK market, what happened there? And should we be expecting more of these big fines in the UK? So I think... um what the, the regulator here has pursued, as we all know, an enforcement-led strategy for a number of years now, which has seen you know increasing fines levied against many of the largest operators and, and indeed many of the sort of mid-tier operators as well. There, you can count. You know, there are fewer and fewer operators that haven't had some sort of enforcement action brought against them, whether it be in the concluded by way of a settlement or indeed in this case as a financial penalty. Um, and so it's, it should come as no surprise that there are more examples of this coming. And actually, the numbers that you see off the back of them um, may well get may well get larger. You know, you've seen some very significant financial penalties or indeed settlements reached during the course of last year. And, and there are known to be obviously ongoing enforcement processes as well. Um, what the regulator has said, and, and this may be reflecting some of the more recent ones that you have may have seen in the press, is mm-hmm. it's made a real it's made a real point of saying that you know where particularly where there's there's seen there is seen to be repeat offenders, so people who have been through enforcement processes once before or twice before, the extent to which issues which are occurring are similar or equivalent to those which have been raised in the past, that will be seen as a, a significant sort of aggravating factor, and so may result in the imposition of a of a larger penalty than might otherwise be the case. Okay, Maybe. so so repeat offenders basically, there's there's sort of recidivists, and you get Why? yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's obviously some logic and coherence to that as a strategy. It obviously doesn't want to, to somehow seem to be sanctioning these sorts of penalties as a as a you know as a, a cost of doing business. You know, to the extent that you yes, are a vendor, it will cost you more money, as it were. Um in terms of the sort of contrast between penalties and settlements, um again, I we have seen in the past the commission be less inclined to reach a settlement with an operator that has been through a, uh, an enforcement process before um that you know that has there's 
not always consistency in that approach because obviously we've seen some businesses that have been through multiple enforcement processes mm -hmm. capable of reaching mm -hmm. a settlement um but nevertheless we have seen the commission sort of not default as quickly to settlement as a potential outcome now of course there can be any number of reasons why settlement doesn't work for an operator as well and particularly mm -hmm. where for example as we're seeing more more examples of where an operator may not feel as able to sort of concede that actually there have been breaches you know one of the conditions of settlement by its sort of nature is that operators are concluding and the commission is concluding enforcement action on terms which are agreed between the parties mm -hmm. and of course if the parties are not agreed on what breaches have occurred then that may well rule out the opportunity to to resolve an enforcement action by way of a settlement so that's okay. obviously one one factor to to bear in mind but um but yeah, so we have seen, I think what, what is probably fair to say is there'd probably like to be more examples of financial penalties being levied than perhaps has been the case in the past for, the, for some of the reasons so, I've mentioned. Yeah. So basically you have the UKGC, which is now going to be, let's say, a little less tolerant with repeat offenders then. I think that is that is fair to say there's not it doesn't take a huge leap to do that. So where, where it is the case, there's a repeat offence, then yes, it will be it will be dealt with in source perhaps sterner okay. sterner terms than, than might otherwise be the case what i would say is you know as much as we've seen in for an enforcement-led approach i mean you've seen in um even the andrew rhodes's recent statements but but sort of more widely at the commission as well i do think we're sort of moving into an era where it's the default to enforcement to drive compliance improvements may well not not be as uh, sort of re that decision to go into enforcement may not be as readily made. I think there's there's definitely a shift in the sort of tone coming out of the Gambling Commission in the UK to say actually it's more prepared. In what, I guess, in to, what sense change in tone? Well, I think there's there's recognition. I think that actually some of the more egregious breaches that you've seen in the facts of the in past or historic enforcement actions isn't really um, apparent in more recent compliance assessments, which are often mm -hmm. the origin of enforcement action. I think the Commission has noticed that had, there has been a shift in the market, and particularly amongst the largest operators, to really um, sort of de-risk their customer bases, and particularly in respect of those that are likely to be examined during an assessment, so your higher value customers, more often now will, will actually have had you know, significant eyes on and sort of risk assessments done with respect to that relationship then, then perhaps might not have been a case in the past. You're also seeing far fewer examples of, you know, one of the key features of lots of recent enforcement is this sort of speed of spend issue. You know, the ability for customers to register deposit and gamble very significant sums in short periods of times before systems are capable of reacting to that. You know, I think what has happened is that the industry has sort of recognised that and actually shifted towards, um, towards not letting that sort of thing happening. And I think you are mm -hmm. seeing an acknowledgement from the Gambling Commission that, that, that the industry has reacted in a way that it, it considers to be kind of appropriate. And therefore, that you will find more examples now, I think, of the Commission, even where issues are identified, because of course they always are, that it may well not feel the need to go to enforcement to drive the changes. It may well sort of trust the industry or the, those operators that are currently being examined to, to sort of make improvements outside the scope of an enforcement process. And we're certainly seeing that in the sort of casework that we're, we're involved with. Should the, we expect the UKGC to also um, step up its um, periodic audits for its operators, for its licensees? Have they increased their, their headcount? Have they increased their resources in order to, to keep up with the number of licensees, but I would imagine now there needs to be a number of 
repeat audits, especially with those who possibly have negotiated settlements the first time round. Yeah, I think um, look, the resourcing at the, at the regulator has always been a, a sort of question for them, as to particularly in pursuit of this enforcement-led strategy. I think there's always been a bit of a perception that there's a sort of backlog in the number of enforcement cases or a number of compliance assessments that are yeah. conducting at any one time, and and the regulator perhaps even more than the industry suffers from sort of a turnover in its staff. And it's well known that the, the members of its compliance and enforcement teams have, mo- have moved on often quite quickly. Um, okay. And so it does, it does, it does. When you um, say they move to, on, they actually move on to operators. Well, they can do in some cases, yes. So, um, or, or move outside the industry altogether. So, so it does deal with that resourcing demand. But my experience is the commission are still, you know, very active and busy undertaking these types of assessments, and you can you can sort of see themes in how it is that they're approaching the task and who it is that they're particularly focusing mm-hmm. on. I mean, the large operators, the commission again, this is its public position because of their simply their market share and their and their impact on the market. Mm-hmm. They they would attract more attention than perhaps ones with a smaller customer base or that have a sort of slightly lower risk lower risk profile. Okay. And similarly, you know, to the extent that you have been involved in enforcement action or in sort of similar enhanced compliance processes where the commission perceives your processes perhaps to present more risk to consumers than than others that are more compliant you will you will receive more attention so you can expect to have more red more frequent assessments Mm -hmm. undertaken of your business than might be the case for some that are perceived to present lower risk so you know they adopt a risk-based approach as to how frequently they're going to get an eyes on 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 businesses which again i think makes makes a lot of sense yeah okay there have been a number of consultation documents issued by the GC these past few months. Um, maybe you could run us through um, what has been published, how the processes are going on, and what should we expect? Look, I mean, and there's been a number of consultations following the publication of the white paper last year. I mean, the, the okay, when you the, talk the, about white paper, for the benefit of of our okay. viewers, white paper so, on. So the white paper was. A government-issued um, uh, paper publishing its view as to what the future of gambling regulation should be in Britain um, okay. going forward. It was much delayed. It's been spoken about for a long time, but it published effectively a whole-scale review of how the market's performing, but also how it is that um, the government sees gambling regulation needs to change to address some of the, the risks presented since the last time it was able to, to undertake that mm-hmm. sort of review. You know, there's been very significant technological developments that have fundamentally shifted both the product, but also the way in which customers and consumers actually use the product as well. Um, so it has a you know a wide ranging um, series of kind of key uh, proposals, much of which has been debated at length, uh, both prior to it and since but are now in the course of being implemented largely through the course of gambling commission consultations. And by that, it means changes to gambling regulation rather than changes to primary law. There are actually relatively few few of the proposals that require legislative change. And so what the gambling commission has been busy doing is you know, give, trying to give effect to the, the government mandated white paper proposals by consulting the industry as it's required to do to propose its view and its visions to what the government actually intended to achieve. So some of the key consultations that are ongoing include things like, um, as much spoken about, uh, consultation to introduce things like financial vulnerability and financial risk checks, um, which has Mm -hmm. recently been consulted on and closed and that we're waiting to see the outcome of. Um, That proposes, as I think 
you know many of your many of your audience will know a requirement a mandated requirement that operators must conduct certain types of financial risk checks so what called financial vulnerability checks or financial risk assessments at predetermined okay. financial loss thresholds so again that's for been players. lost spoke for players yeah and that's been much spoken about and debated both in the press and even among government officials uh, in the industry as to what that's actually going to mean and how it's actually going to be implemented. And it has some really quite thorny sort of challenges still um, associated with it and some sort of still unknown, unanswered questions about how that's actually going to work in practice. So there's a whole suite of sort of ongoing and um, ongoing consultations to give effect to things like that um, at the moment. So it's all okay. changed. So I need to ask with the possibility of of well very strong likelihood now because according to the poll i saw earlier this week and um, the indications are there will be a change of government in the coming months in the yep. uk um is has the the labor party given any public has it made aware to the public its position on gaming or um, right now, is it an issue which is better kept under wraps because it doesn't win you any votes? There are certainly uh, some very vocal politicians within the Labour Party that campaign for gambling reform in much the same way that politicians do in, within the government. Um, in what sense? Which, in which direction do they want reform? There, there's some some Labour ministers are very active in in proposing, let's say, more sort of radical reform as far as, so far as what you know, let's say, financial risk checks that they should these should be mandated at lower levels, and much more onerous, certainly as it as as it would um, impact the industry, because they're driving for you know it's it's understandable they're driving to try and reduce or absolutely avoid some of the harms that can be caused through you know through gambling uh, to excess or out of mm -hmm. control and so you are seeing ministers on the labor side who are are proponents of more serious or more significant reform that perhaps has been proposed in the white paper but as to its formal position on what the party as a whole would take should it actually enter into government as as you suggest this may seem likely that is still a bit of an unknown you can make some sort of predictions or guesses as to what that might look like but um but I wouldn't think that it's likely to be, you know, a significant shift, particularly given the amount of work that's already gone into proposing something which is actually quite coherent and logical, as is in okay. the, as is in the white paper. I'm not sure that the Labour Party is likely to represent a sort of fundamental shift to the pursuit of that policy objective. Yeah. It might be, okay. but I, I doubt it. Okay. And um, is there any date on, on when the election will be taking place? Now, this is a bit more on personal curiosity than anything else. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> we, we, we wait, e I wait eagerly in Britain as to when that's going to be, because obviously mu there's, yeah, there's much said about the current government as to whether or not it's, um, you know, it's it still has the authority to, con to continue governing, given all that's happened in the last four or five years. But the latest seems to seems to indicate that it's not going to happen in the first, uh, first half of this year. So autumn is likely likely when it's going to be okay it might, so be as september, late, october. It might be as might be as late as september october even november of course in november if there's an election held that late there's obviously the question mark around other elections that are happening in and around that time notably in the us as well but november if i was a betting man would be probably where i would guess it would take place okay um okay thanks for again. the heads up on that <laughs> so um i'll ask i'll ask this question Brexit, 
we're what yeah. now? Four or five years after the UK left left the European Union. Yeah. What sort of impact has it had on the gaming sector in the UK, if any? Gaming sector, I think it's um, it's it's less in terms of you know how it's how it has been for sort of UK consumers, but many of the businesses that we advise have been fundamentally impacted about what, how it is that they organise themselves to provide their services. So what we saw post Brexit, and particularly with the status of Gibraltar moving mm-hmm. with the UK outside, effectively outside of the European Union. It, it fund and a lot of the big online UK facing online um, gambling operators having established themselves historically in Gibraltar, it did force them to reconsider where where they needed to set up their operating hubs in, in order to continue supplying their services both in the UK but more pertinently throughout the European Union and indeed elsewhere. It's well known, obviously, in in many jurisdictions throughout Europe, it's made a condition of obtaining a license and accessing the local mm-hmm. market that the company that does so needs itself to be established within the European Union. And obviously that that no longer was the case for those Gibraltar-based yeah. businesses. So what you saw was a shift towards either shift of their entire operating hub or, or a movement of certain certain of their business functions or in the establishment of another operating hub elsewhere in the EU, Malta being the obvious the obvious destination for that. So we saw that being a big shift. But as, as it concerns sort of UK-facing services and consumers, <laughs> it's not been an enormous impact, as I say, on a point of consumption basis, the regulations are largely unaffected by the fact of Brexit. Um, yeah. Okay. You mentioned Gibraltar, if 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 I may ask you this question. Gibraltar were, like Malta, recently greylisted. Mm-hmm. But the news coming out in October by the FATF was that Gibraltar has done enough to come off that list and it will be announced at the next, let's just call it executive big meeting of FATF happening in February. Yeah. Two questions. Did you did you see any notable impact on business in, in Gibraltar during this grey listing? Because, for example, the after effects on Malta after being grey listed was that bank- banking became impossible for both gaming companies and employees of gaming companies. So have you seen anything either linked to gam- to banking or anything else? Yeah, I, um, I, I, wait, wait, wait. I have yeah, two questions. On. So have you seen anything on those lines? Second question, which is actually a question I've been asked by a couple of people is, so the intention was in October to remove them from the gray list. Why are we waiting till February? Especially because grey listing does cause certain issues, especially mm. commercially and operationally. I don't know if you can jump into that, but I'm sure it's a pertinent question that needs to be asked right now. It is. Um, so in terms of the first question on the impact, I mean, we definitely saw that, as, as you've alluded to in Malta, the impact of the grey listing, certainly of your key stakeholder relationship and banks being particularly the relevant one, we saw it sort of trigger a sort of, I don't know whether nervousness is the right say, but a withdrawal of their preparedness to support the sector to the extent that it still featured on on the grey list. Um, and I think there was a similar impact in Gibraltar, but I don't think it was as sort of keenly felt. And I don't really understand why. Um, I do think there was an impact, but it didn't. It wasn't certainly from my okay. perspective, it wasn't as sort of keenly felt in Gibraltar perhaps as it might have been in Malta, and there may be reasons unknown to me for that. What I would say is it definitely did have an impact, and certainly businesses who weren't already established in Gibraltar or already supporting the sector would have 
taken that into consideration as to whether Gibraltar was a jurisdiction where they wanted to start to prepare to support or indeed wanted to to, to go and get licenses and start operating there. So I do think it has had an impact, but mm-hmm. it might not be as significant as perhaps happened in Malta. Okay. Um, as to why February and not October, your your guess is kind of as good as mine on that. I don't know whether, I mean, obviously, on the back of greylisting, there is sort of ongoing sort of assurances given about the extent to which changes, necessary changes have been made to bring, you know, to bring the, the jurisdiction off the grey list. You know, part of what was pointed to was things like the effectiveness of supervision of the regulator there about it's like the conduct of its licensees and the extent to which it is actually properly, you know, properly enforcing the laws and regulations um, that are imposed there. And you have seen, you know, as often has happened, there being a reaction from regulators in terms of the the sort of standards that they're prepared to enforce. And I, I certainly have seen that happen in, in Gibraltar in much the same way as we saw happen in Malta and, and may happen elsewhere as well. But I don't I don't know, to be quite honest with you, as to why why it's February and not October, for example, to your question. All right. Okay. So we have the last couple of minutes before yep. we close off. UK market 2024. First off, ICE is coming up in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Um, uh, how big, how how important is this last edition of ICE taking place in London for the market, for the British market especially? And how do you see the market evolving in 2024? So ICE is always is always a you know, from my perspective, has always been an enormously significant event in the British gambling market. Um it's it's usually incredibly well attended by you know people from across the globe and I expect this year's edition to be no different to that in fact it does it definitely feels like this one is going to be particularly well attended um I don't know whether that is because it's the sort of end of an era type um conference but uh but uh you know the diaries are quickly quickly filling up and um it feels like lots of people are going to be in town so it has it has been a bit of an institution in in Britain uh, for for a number of years, um, mm-hmm. and this year is going to be no different. I suspect it will be interesting to see what happens next year and when it moves. But um, I don't know whether that, what what proposes there may well be to propose some sort of alternative in London. I know a lot of people like to come to the UK even in February when it's not quite as nice as it might be in other other times of the year. But we shall see on that. Um, and as to your sort of wider question, what can we expect for the industry generally? I mean, I think it's going to be an. Uh, uh, I've sort of alluded to an mm. evolution into a new era of sort of regulatory oversight. I think that is one thing that I think will start to bear its fruit, certainly for the large operators in 2024. But obviously, it's still you know it's not it's not an, uh, an amazing prediction to say it's going to be an ongoing sort of consultations change. Um, it's all changed at the moment in the UK, and so I think it's going to be a busy year for really sort of lobbyists and indeed gambling companies to try and actually shape the, the future of what gambling regulation in the UK is going to look like. There's some really important changes that can, if if done sort of in a way that is perhaps uh, mm. not not what the government's intended, could have very significant impacts for the industry. The financial risk, risk checks I've mentioned, obviously the ombudsman being introduced, these are things which can have Sort of very significant um, impacts on the industry and potentially very significant unintended consequences. So I think there's some very important sort of policy objectives that are going to be pursued this year that I think will be keeping lots and lots of people very, very busy. Um, yeah. So thank you so much um, for joining us, Chris. Really appreciate that you accepted our invite. But before we end, I'd also like to take this opportunity to remind our viewers 
about Sigma Eurasia, which will be taking place in Dubai between the 25th and the 27th of February. And I urge you, if you're interested in finding out more information about this event, to go to the Sigma.world website and find out more about Sigma Eurasia taking place between the 25th and the 27th of February in Dubai. Chris, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Trev. Always a pleasure.